Our speaker tonight is Therese Ivers. Therese is originally from California, but she's been interning this summer at the diocesan offices uh, of Vocations and the Marriage Tribunal. Uh, she's studying in Rome, studying theology and canon law, and she's also currently discerning uh, a vocation to consecrated virginity. And tonight, Therese will be speaking on the varieties of consecrated life. I think a lot of times, a lot of us as Catholics, when we think of what is consecrated life, even if you have some half idea of what that means, we tend to think of nuns and monks and so on. So, but tonight, Therese is going to tell us a little bit more about the great variety of consecrated life. And if you saw the title that I gave the talk, I think much to Therese's chagrin, uh, Hermituses and Anchoruses, oh my, or something like that. Uh, you've all heard of hermits, and I don't know, anybody ever heard of anchorites? Just out of curiosity, a good couple. Well, Therese will tell you a little bit about them and what they are and do. So please help me welcome Therese Ivers. Thank you, Dr. Bergwald. Uh, that was a very wonderful introduction. And, you know, I am just so delighted to be here today. Um, and... Since this is about consecrated life, I think it would be very appropriate if we started with a prayer. So, um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together tonight. Fill our hearts with an ardent love for you and enlighten our minds so that we may know how to more closely follow you to in the path of holiness, in the path that you have given to us from all eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yes, as Chris mentioned, I was really, I almost had a minor heart attack when I saw the title of the talk. And I, you know, because I had casually mentioned that, yes, I would be talking about hermits and anchorites and that kind of thing, and all of a sudden I see that in print and I'm thinking, oh my, <laughs> um, this is, this is going to be a mouthful. So uh, the first thing that I wanted to say was, I was, I've been traveling around the diocese, getting to know the diocese, because part of my work here in the diocese has been in trying to form a culture of vocations. And vocations um, to the priesthood, to consecrated life, to the path that God wants for each and every one of us. And my focus has been a lot on helping women discern their vocations in the Catholic Church. And so anyway, here I was, I was, uh, I've been going around the diocese and so this past week, I was at Holy Spirit School, and I was talking to the, the children there, and, and I asked them, so what is a consecrated person? What is, like, you know, what do religious do, for instance? This little girl raised her hand, and she said, they pray all day. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> they do. Then I was thinking, in the, in, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, and I'll bet you anything, I'm willing to bet that she probably thinks it's the most boring thing on the planet 
you know, with visions of these, like, sisters on their knees all day in prayer and, you know, living a really, really boring existence. I mean, that's how I would have felt. So why not this, this girl? And I'm sure she was probably thinking what everybody else was thinking in the room. Boring, boring. Who wants to pray all day? I mean, that just, well, you, you want to go out, you want to play, you want to have fun. And, you know, for those of us who are a little bit older, we want to do our own little things, right? Uh, prayer? Well, yeah, that, that's what we do on Sundays. And, you know, maybe we have prayer together or something like that, but it's not a thing which really excites us. And, well, for consecrated life, prayer is at the heart of consecrated life. And it's not just this thing where you just kind of feel um, like this stone wall relationship between you and God. In fact, I kind of give it a name. Have you ever experienced this where um, it's, it's just kind of like, well, God, you know, you're out there somewhere, and um, I'm trying to be good and all the rest of that, but, uh, you know, you just, you just seem to be from a different planet. Um, how do I know you're actually listening to me? What's, you know, what's going on here? I think a lot of that is very common. It's easy to experience. Um, and I call this um, thing, that there is this phenomenon where we can kind of say, well, um, if, if we might do something good, let's say we do an act of kindness for somebody, it's really easy to slip into the third person. And I call this the third personitis syndrome. And what is that? That's where you refer to God as the he, the distant God, instead of the you. God, I am here totally for you. Whatever I'm doing, whatever path in life that I'm in, I am here for you. I am doing this, that, or the other thing. It could be something as simple as washing your car. It could be taking care of kids. It could be, you know, responding to a grumpy customer as a customer service representative. But if you're treating that person on the other end of the line as Christ, if you are taking care of the kids as Christ, if you're taking care of the car as stewardship over Christ's things on this world, and you have that you relationship, it changes everything. And... All of us, by the sacrament of baptism, are called to a dedication to Christ's service. Why? Because we have been privileged to be in his family. We've been privileged to be incorporated into the life of the Trinity. And this is what life is all about. This is where we find true fulfillment. We don't find it in longer vacations. We don't find it in bigger cars, better cars, faster cars, uh, more money, possessions, relationships with people. Relationships with people may be beautiful, but they don't touch to your very inmost being and fill that longing for infinite happiness. Only God can do that. And we, as human beings, we are about relationships. 
God gave us the first relationship of being his beloved daughters and sons by the virtue of baptism. Now, what does this have to do with consecrated life? You're probably wondering. Well, um, let me ask you this. How many of you have heard the question, what do you do? Oh, come on. There's got to be more people who have had that question. What do you do? Well, is that the most important question on the planet? The most important question is, who are you? That is the most important question. What you do, what you produce, that's all very well and good, but it's who you are and what your relationships are that really get you somewhere. And so our religion is a religion of relationships. This is, what, this is, the, this is the heart of our religion. And for a lot of us, our vocation will be to marriage. A relationship. Now, I always tell this to everybody I talk to who's thinking about getting married. I'm like, you know, I am so glad you're going to um, consider being married. And please remember that the, the beauty of your vocation is that you and your fiancé, soon-to-be husband or wife, should be going and growing together in the love of God. Because by doing so, they will, you will be full of joy and happiness. No matter what your circumstances are, you could be on the streets, living on the streets. And if you're still living up to your commitments, you can be exceedingly happy. You could be starving in Africa, and you can be exceedingly happy. Um, the point of matrimony, this beautiful relationship between a man and a woman, is for the couple to go hand in hand to heaven. And the best way of doing that is to grow in a relationship with God, with the you, not the third personitis, like, yeah, God is a he and he's kind of distant and we kind of think about him when we serve God by going to Mass every Sunday um, and just put him as the third personitis because, because God will give us complete fulfillment. This is what we're looking for. Now, another way of, of uh, or a path, so to speak, to heaven besides marriage is the priesthood. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it because I'm sure you've had a lot of talks about the priesthood and it's a, you know, it's a very common subject. What I will say is that the vocation to the priesthood is a vocation to serve the church as Christ served the church. Again, it's a relationship. The priest is there, and the deacon, you know, some of you might be permanent deacons, I don't know, but the priest and the permanent deacon and the bishops are there to be as Christ. That is, he lived and died for the church, his bride. And so this is what the priest does. He dies to self and he lives to help the members of the church out by his service. And that relationship of mirroring Christ and you know, really becoming holy and ministering to the people. And today's topic 
is actually on consecrated life. And what I'm not going to be talking about is I'm not specifically going to be talking about religious priests uh, because I'm just going to group them into the category of priests for now. And I'm also not going to talk too much about religious brothers. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was looking up some of the statistics for consecrated uh, members of the church in some of the dioceses in the United States, I saw the numbers and uh, the ratio of male to female was very interesting. There was about, I would say, 10% of you know, males to about 90% females in consecrated life. And so I thought, you know, I am going to be inclusive. I will talk about the, the vocations of um, consecrated life for men but I'm mostly going to focus on the relationships that the woman will be in, um, simply because, again, um, many young men who feel the call to follow Christ and to serve uh, his bride, the church, uh, by their lives of sacrifice and prayer, they um, will mostly become priests. There will be some of them who join the consecrated life. And so I'm going to talk about consecrated life mostly geared towards women, but not entirely. So um, I was walking one day from the chapel, Adoration Chapel. Has anybody been to it at the cathedral? It's, it's really lovely. I, I'm really in awe as, you know, for, for the modern art there. And um, when you're going out of the chapel, on the left-hand side, you'll see a picture of a sister and an Indian woman. And the sister is one of our American-born saints. Now, there's so few of them that I'm going to try to bring them as much into our talk as possible because, you know, I'm, I'm just so glad we have some North American saints here. And this sister's name was uh, Saint Catherine Drexel, or is it Blessed Catherine Drexel? Um, she was a very wealthy heiress. I believe she was born in Boston, and um, she felt a call to serve uh, the poor and the Indians, and so she did a lot with her wealth in those areas of ministry, and uh, she was a religious. And sometimes I get the feeling that when we think about consecrated life, we look at people like her, of Mother Teresa, of um, St. Elizabeth Seton, who was a teacher in uh, the East Coast. And I get the idea that when we think of consecrated life, one of the first things that pops into our minds are you know, pictures of sisters like them, Mother Teresa, of, of women and men who have done service in various respects, whether it's nursing, whether it's teaching, whether it's social work, whether it's pastoral ministry, whatever it might be, um, as religious sisters. And, um, and some of us know what that life is all about, some of us don't, but it is, it is definitely strange. And when I was talking 
with that girl, you know, when she said, oh, sisters pray all day, um, that's probably, you know, an impression we, we get too, is they pray all day and maybe they do a lot of work too. Um, uh, but what we don't always realize is that sisters, like everybody else in the Catholic Church, they have a very special call for a relationship with the Lord. And so remember when I said, what's, what's the most important question? It's who you are, not what you do. What is your relationship? Well, the relation, what a sister is, what a religious sister is, is not about what she does. She could be a teacher. She could be like Catherine Drexel and work with the Indians. She and underprivileged. Uh, she could be like uh, St. Elizabeth Seton who taught. Um, she could be like Mother Teresa who served the poorest of the poor. She could do all those things. But she's primarily a bride of Jesus Christ by virtue of her vows. It's that relationship thing because she's so totally and utterly in love with the Lord that she spontaneously gives her life to him. And C.S. Lewis actually put this well. He said, he, he wrote this book, I think it was called The Four Loves. Anyway, he wrote somewhere, love makes vows unasked. And I think you would find that if you were dating somebody that you eventually married, you see that you really want to, to be a self-gift to that person. Well, a religious is a self-gift. She makes vows, and uh, she is primarily a bride of Christ. And what is a bride of Christ? It's somebody who is given the call to a spousal relationship with the Lord. And that is what the life is all about. It's that spousal relationship where she mirrors the church in its spousal relationship with Christ. And she also, at the same time, is a spiritual mother, just like the church is a virgin bride. The church is also a spiritual mother. She mirrors that because by the grace of Christ that uh, makes her union with him fruitful, she becomes a spiritual mother of souls. And that can only happen with a deep, intimate relationship with Christ and, you know, her total self-gift. Because, again, you know, you can't give what you don't have. And it is from the fruits of her intimate union with God that she can dedicate time to some of the other um, apostolates that she might have undertaken, whether it be teaching or nursing or whatever. Those are um, ways of showing Christ, I love you. Not, I am serving God, but I love you. Again, it's always that spousal relationship. It's always that you in marriage should be, I am working for the love of you. I would like to deepen my love with you. Not, well, I'm doing this for my husband or I'm doing this for my wife. It's the you factor, that love and self-gift. And uh, anyway, religious, 
are probably what we commonly associate with co uh, consecrated life. We know that they take vows. We know that something makes them a little bit different from uh, the rest of us, and uh, that's, uh, that's, that's generally what we know about them. And I thought that tonight what I would do is I would actually go through some of the categories of consecrated life. And these are mostly, there's one exception, open to men and women. And again, I, as I said before, we're, not, we're ignoring the priests. So with that being said, uh, the first one is religious life. We're all familiar with it, hopefully. I know that there are some sisters and brothers in this diocese. And um, there are some characteristics of uh, religious life that I learned in Rome. The first one is that religious take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, this is called following the evangelical councils. Now, how the religious live that is the practical details are left to the rules of their institution. So. Um, for instance, um, it might be poverty, might be practice in one place where there's no TV. In another place, TV might be necessary, like in EWTN, for instance. If they didn't have TV, you know, they wouldn't be able to really practice their apostolate. So um, they need to have what it takes to fulfill their apostolate. Um, so the first thing that religious and indeed all uh, consecrated persons are characterized by is a following of the three evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And religious also have another um, characteristic, and that is they are separate from the world. So does that mean that they renounce the world? Does that mean that they become hermits and just say, oh, you know, the world's a bad place, we're just gonna squirrel away and hide? No, doesn't mean that. What a separation from the world means is that they are trying to improve that spousal relationship and they are more or less taking some of the things that would distract them from that intense relationship and saying, we're going to put this aside because um, if we live without these things, they will help us focus in on our relationship with Jesus Christ. So, uh, as I said, poverty, chastity, and obedience, they are separate from the world. And uh, usually a sign of that separation from the world is a habit or some outward sign of that separation. Some communities have opted not to follow that, although it is in canon law. Um, the third characteristic of religious life and of religious communities is that they are communal. There's a big emphasis on community there. Now, does it necessarily mean that they all have to live under the same roof? It might be ideal, but Sometimes they can't do that, um, you know, especially if you're missionaries or something like that. That's, that's just frankly impossible. But they want a spirit of community. There should be communal interaction. And, um, and so you have poverty expressed communally. You have 
you know, they, they often pool their resources together. They usually don't have funds that are in their own name. Um, but again, it depends on their institute, how they live out communal life. But that is the third characteristic of religious life. And as I said, we know, we know some sisters, um, they give us beautiful witness to the spousal relationship that they have with the Lord. Um, and we can all think of some of those beautiful examples. It's the most commonly known form of consecrated life. And in religious life, we have people we know as monks, as friars, as sisters, as nuns. These are all different titles for people living the religious life. And um, as I said, I was only going to briefly touch on them. So now I'm going to turn our attention to some of the less known forms of consecrated life. The first one, other than religious life, is that of societies of apostolic life. Now I have to admit that I really don't know of any really good examples of these people because I'm, they're just rare. I believe that the oratorians belong to this category, but what they are is they resemble, um, for, they resemble religious life and consecrated life, but they don't take vows. They live in common life, and uh, they live in an institute with some kind of purpose. And as I said, I couldn't find a lot of practical examples of this type of life, so I'm just going to have to say that what makes them distinguished is that they are mentioned in canon law, so they are canonically recognized as a way of life for the faithful to join, but they are not considered like consecrated, consecrated. They are a form of dedication, dedicated life to Christ. Um, the next uh, type form of life, you could call it, is that of the canonical hermit, hermitesses, anchorites, and all those other wonderful titles, right, Chris? <laughs> and I have to tell you, when I was talking about hermits to the, to the children at the schools, um, they asked me, are hermits, do they live in a shell? Are they crabs? And I was thinking, well, maybe some of our visions of hermits could be crabby old people who've renounced society for whatever reason, but they're just, you know, they're loners. <laughs> and they, they don't like people. Well, that's not our idea of consecrated hermits. Uh, consecrated hermits are men or women. The women are called, normally they're called hermitesses, but um, they are individuals who do not live in a community. They live alone in solitude. They rarely see people. Now, there are exceptions. You know, they might go to mass, so of course they're going to be with people. Some of them have to go grocery shopping. They're going to see people. Um, some of them have like a, I don't know, like retreat center at their hermitage. So they're going to bump into people. 
But the idea is they live in greater solitude and withdrawal from the world so that they can concentrate more on the things of God and to really engage in prayer and sacrifice for the world. A couple examples of this are found in sacred scripture. We know that Moses withdrew to the desert. We knew that St. John the Baptist went into the desert for 40 days. I, wait, I'm getting mixed up here. Anyway, St. John the Baptist lived in the desert for a while, eating locusts and wild honey. Um, our Lord went to the desert. These were for periods of intense prayer and communion with the Lord. And so what is this telling us? It's not about, you know, I hate society. This is all about me. No, this is about, again, a relationship. I am having a relationship with the Lord that is so um, compelling that I feel that the Spirit is leading me to greater solitude so that I can deepen this relationship with Him in this way. Very few people are called to it, but it does occur. And actually, I just, I, I have a website on vocations, and for it, I do periodic um, telephone interviews and things. And um, I had recently the privilege of speaking with a hermitess. And so I was asking her, well, what do you do all day? Um, well, prayed, of course, but she has like 60 acres in Wisconsin. And so she was telling me that, you know, part of the time she spends in gardening and she also has a retreat center. So sometimes, you know, she gives counseling to the guests who come at, at her retreat house. Um, she doesn't give formal retreats. She's just kind of there sometimes as a hostess. And, um, but that her life was one of, you know, prayer and meditation and, and you know, a, a withdrawal for the world in order to concentrate on her divine spouse. And what makes a hermit? Well, to be honest with you, in the first few centuries of the Catholic Church, there, um, there were a lot of hermits running around. Well, not running around. They were just there. Um, they, went, they went to the desert. And one of the most famous is St. Anthony of the desert. And um, he, he was out there in the desert uh, for, gosh, many, many years. And um, he kind of, he's one of the most well-known hermits out there who went out to the desert and started a life of solitude and prayer and hard work. Um, the hermits really worked hard. And there is this little story of uh, one of the disciples, one of the hermit disciples. Um, they would, the hermits often had disciples because people would hear about them and then they'd want to try it out and become hermits themselves. And so sometimes there was like a community of hermitages. And um, so anyway, this disciple came to his spiritual father one day. And he said, you know, I don't really think that it's a good idea to do all this basket weaving and work. You know, because they would weave baskets in order to sell them for the markets 
in order to get food and stuff, okay? And he was like, I think my vocation is prayer. So the, the spiritual father was like, okay, okay. And um, so the, the day went by, the next morning, um, you know, day went as normal, and this fellow wasn't invited to the communal meal. And he went up to his spiritual father in distress, and he said, well, why wasn't I invited to the communal meal? And his spiritual father said, according to St. Paul, if you work not, eat not. So anyway, they have to work. Um, but what characterizes hermits today and what makes them officially recognized in the church as consecrated people is that they follow a rule of life, which they usually draw up, and they profess the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience in the hands of their bishop. That's what makes a canonical hermit. Now, somebody could go, and like the old people in the, in the church of centuries ago, could you know, just say, I feel a calling to this, but I really don't want to be officially consecrated. Then they can try out the life and stuff. But they wouldn't have the same rights and obligations and standing as a canonical diocesan hermit would have. And uh, there are secular institutes. I understand that there are no secular institutes in this diocese. But a secular, uh, basically, members of secular institutes are dedicated to Christ, but they live in the world. That's their characteristic. Religious are separated from the world. Members of secular institutes are in the world dedicated to Christ. And they have various apostolic works. Lastly, the vocation I'm discerning is the vocation to consecrated virginity. Now remember I said that what I say really applies to both men and women for the most part. Well, this is only open to women. Um, and consecrated virginity is a life where the virgin is dedicated. Um, she is given a consecration by the bishop. And there, um, it, it's uh, a permanent consecration. If she doesn't say any vows, she makes a proposal to observe virginity for the rest of her life. And um, when the bishop consecrates her, it's in a ceremony that's kind of like halfway between an ordination and halfway like a marriage. They usually wear a bridal gown. Um, she is given a wedding band because she is mystically betrothed to the Lord. She is a true bride of Christ. And she's given the book of hours as a reminder that her chief duty is to pray and do penance for her diocese. And this is a vocation that is lived in the world. And when I'm asked about it, I usually say, this vocation is like that of a married woman. You know, you don't wear a habit. You don't, um, you know, you don't, you don't have a strict, strict rule that you can't violate because just like a married woman is going to have various things come up in her day because she's living in the world, the same thing happens for the consecrated virgin. And, um, and that is what I am hoping to be. 
The consecration, as I said, is done by the diocesan bishop. And um, that, I believe, is the end of my talk. Thank you. Do I keep it on? What we'll do now is, uh, if anybody has questions, we'll take up to 15 minutes answering any questions that you might have. I'm going to have a mic, though, uh, that's for the video recording. So if you can wait for me to get to you, if you do have a question, so we make sure that the question gets on the video, and then Therese will answer it as well. Sounds good to me. Are there any questions? <laughs> All right. Yeah, Chris. We, we've heard often of th three vocations to religious life, to, to married life, and to the single life. Mm -hmm. But you've really put a different um, piece in here because this isn't just the single life. This is actually a consecrated life, like religious life. Um, how come it's not better known? Why isn't the consecrated life better known? Because we know about religious life and single life and married life. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a good question. <laughs> I, it's, it's uh, as I said, one of, one of the things that I should probably clarify here is that I'm, what I just talked about are official forms of consecrated life. Um, oftentimes, like I had this really, I met this beautiful woman who came from Africa while I was studying in Rome, and um, she was just an awesome, awesome lady. And she'd go around evangelizing Europe, and uh, she told me, I'm a consecrated laywoman. What, what is a consecrated laywoman? Well, a lot of people who decide to dedicate their lives to Christ in the single life um, are there dedicating their lives, but they're not doing it in a way that is legally binding as permanent, if that makes any sense. Um, they're doing this as a private initiative. So they might have a private vow of chastity, they might have a private vow of whatever, um, and that's good. But it's not what I was talking about, which is the official consecrated life in the church. Um, and so the difference is there's rights and obligations that are taken on if you become an official consecrated person in the church. For instance, um, in order to have to be considered consecrated by Catholic law for canon law, for legal purposes in the Catholic Church, there has to be an acceptance on the part of the church of the competent authority. So in some of these things, you know, it's the bishops who have approved a way of life for religious life, for instance, or secular institutes or societies of apostolic life. It's the bishop who receives the public vows of the hermit. It's the bishop who does the consecration over the uh, consecrated virgin. These are all ways of the church accepting this person's candidacy and putting them in the consecrated state. Whereas, um, why is it better, not better known? I don't know. 
I really don't know. How did I hear about it? Well, <laughs> I, I've always been interested in uh, the religious life, uh, lay movements and things like that, so I did a lot of studies on it. And I knew members of secular institutes and religious, so my, my horizon was kind of broadened. Thank you. Um, do members of secular institutes take vows? Okay, the question is, do members of secular institutes take vows? And the answer is, is they take a, um, some kind of form of sacred bond. So it could be vows, it could be promises. And, uh, and the idea is that they have this dedication to Christ and they do it in the world. Thank you. Any others? <laughs> So one of the one of the names in the title of this talk was anchorites, I believe. Yes, it was could, anchorites. Could you explain what anchorites are? Yes, I can explain what an anchorite is. An anchorite is a hermit or hermitess, and um, there were various forms of anchorites. And maybe I should just tell you really quickly of of one form. Um, they had in the Middle Ages, and actually, here's another, I said I wanted to mention some of our North American saints. Um, we have a Canadian, she was born 16 years after Montreal was founded. Her name was Jean Leber, and apparently what she did was um, she gave, she was, she was a daughter of the wealthiest merchant in Montreal. And she and her family gave a, an enormous donation to um, a particular convent. And uh, what they arranged was that she, after testing her life out, she went, um, she was living in her family in a room um, and she would never go outside this room. And she did that for five years because she felt that she was called to withdraw to solitude to pray. And that's what she did for five years in her father's house. Well, her family gave this big donation, and eventually what happened was um, they built a chapel. The, these religious sisters built a chapel with the money, and attached to the chapel, they, they built this three-story um, attachment, like a building, kind of just a couple rooms um, to the church so that there was a little window where she could look out on the tabernacle. And then there, they had a ceremony where she was dedicated to Christ publicly, and they walled her in there. She was in there till the end of her life. And I think she was in her 50s when she died. But she's an example of an anchoress. And she is uh, the servant of God now. That's, that's um, what she is right now. Um, and an example of consecrated virgins, although she, she um, never could become a consecrated virgin because the Jesuits were kind of, um, didn't know what to think at that time. She made a vow of, of perpetual virginity, was blessed Kateri Tekakwitha. And... Um, 
she was, she was a very vibrant example among the Indians as a, um, as a virgin. And today, she would have been a, a consecrated virgin. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. I have two questions. Okay. First, how does our bishop feel about perhaps conducting your vows in the future? And if he does, would you be required to stay in our diocese? <laughs> Very good questions. Okay. Um, so how does the question is, how does Bishop Swain here view um, the possibility of my living as a consecrated virgin? And the second question is, if I receive the con uh, consecration of virgins living in the world, would I have to stay put in this diocese? Okay, to the answer of your first, um, Bishop Swain is open to discerning with me the call to consecrated virginity. He, um, as a good lawyer, knows that Canon Law 604 actually talks about the consecration of virgins, and he is open to what the church permits. Um, now, in answer to your second question, uh, consecrated virgins are kind of like priests in that they have a very special bond with the diocesan bishop. Very special relationship. Uh, and one of their primary duties is to pray for the bishop, the priest, and the needs of the diocese to which she's, she is a part. Um, and of course, since it's the bishop that gives the sacramental, uh, she has that special bond. But that's not incarnation. She's not incarnated into the diocese like a priest would be. So she is free to go wherever she pleases. Um, and they, they suggest that you know, she gets a letter of introduction from her bishop of her place of origin to the uh, bishop of where she's going to be relocating to. And just as a side note, there are no vows made. There is a proposal to observe perpetual virginity. And um, this is taken very, very seriously. It's, it's almost like a vow, but it is not a vow. It's a resolution. And what, what happens in the ceremony is that the bishop consecrates the virgin. He, her body and soul are set apart for the Lord's service. And so it's not something that can be dispensed. A vow can be dispensed. A consecration cannot be dispensed because there are no vows, vows involved. Um, that setting apart, making, um, in the words of, I think it's either the ceremony or canon law, the virgin is constituted a sacred person. You can't, you can't get out of it. Um, and so there, as I said, there's no vows there. But the church does ask that there be proof that the virgin will be able to live that out, that commitment for the rest of her life. So they're probably not going to consecrate teenagers unless maybe there's a persecution going on, and that would justify it. But normally, um, they wait till the person is older. How would you be identified uh, to the outside world that you had, in fact, uh, taken this vow or consecration? So, okay, the question is, how would I be identified if I become a consecrated virgin? 
And the answer is really simple. There are no titles, there's no habit, nothing except a wedding band. She is truly a married person. She's married to Jesus Christ, and that is, that is her symbol. She is truly in the world as well. So there, are, there is no distinguishing characteristic other than the wedding band. But thank you. Any other questions? Yes. If, if I may ask on a personal yes. level, um, what called you to do this versus being a sister? Okay. So the question is, how did I discern a vocation to consecrated virginity as opposed to being a religious sister? Well, um, okay, I guess also on a personal level, I don't, um, physically, I don't have what it would take to live in community, um, no matter how loosely the community life was lived. Um, that's one aspect. Another aspect is that um, there is a special charism for uh, consecrated virgins who live in the world. It's an individual vocation. And I was always fascinated since I was very young by the stories of the um, early Christian martyrs like Lucy, Agatha, Cecilia, and some of the other names that you know fairly well. Um, they were just marvelous, marvelous uh, young women, and they had, you know, dedicated their virginity to the Lord, and I just felt really, really attracted to that. And the other thing is, I don't feel a call, which you need to have in religious life, um, to be to live that communal life out, and to live that separateness from the world. I am very much a person in the world. Um, in fact, one of the things, I, I really didn't seriously consider consecrated virginity until maybe a few years ago, and that was because I had been under the um, mistaken um, idea that consecrated virgins were hermits. And I, there was no way I was cut out be, to be a hermit. I'm cut out to be among the people and, you know, to, to hopefully share my love for Christ with the people, but not, you know, just to, to, to be in solitude away from the people. It's just not part of my calling. So um, those are some of the reasons uh, why. And uh, I, yeah. Yes. So if it's not a call to hermitage, is it in any particular way a call to serve the church, or might you have a job at the local bakery or the local bank? Oh, good question. Okay, the question is, if this is not a vocation to live in community, like religious would, can you have a job at the bakery, or do you somehow serve the church? And uh, the answer to that is a consecrated virgin does serve the church. She serves a church primarily by who she is. She is a woman of prayer and penance. Those are her two big job titles. Secondarily, because she is a woman in the world, 
she has to support herself somehow. There, the bishop is not obligated to support her, so she has to, you know, have a living. We have a firefighter, consecrated virgin, um, a CPA who runs a very successful accounting business. Um, there are school teachers, um, and uh, I think one of them, I, I believe, uh, is a works for the post office. I'm not really sure about what all of them do, but they do a variety of things. And again, the biggest thing is that who they are, not what they do. They are primarily a bride of Christ. They have that spousal relationship with Christ. Obviously, they need to spend time in prayer and penance. And often consecrated virgins, by being publicly consecrated in the church, public spouses of Christ, they often have the privilege of having the Blessed Sacrament reserved in their homes. And that is, you know, one of the greatest blessings that a consecrated virgin can have. Um, again, it's not a focus on so much on what they do, because they can do anything that is moral and fitting. Um, it's on who they are, where their heart is, and their whole being is, um, should be, you know, it's consecrated to the Lord. So that's, yeah, good question. We have time. Do we have time for one more question? Okay. Does anybody else have any last questions here? <laughs> All right. We'll have two more questions. Um, you talk about penance. What types of forms and how do your penance are determined? Okay. How are penances determined? Well. I, you know, uh, are you talking specifically consecrated virgins or all of consecrated life? Okay, whatever. Well, sometimes, um, you know, for religious, often penance is living with others. Um, no, seriously, it could be the hardest thing on the planet. Uh, they do talk about, um, I've heard all these stories from, I, I've met so many religious from four different countries uh, well, actually more, but I've visited religious in many, many countries, and the unanimous thing is that the hardest, most difficult penance is community life, because you have to put up with sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so and their eccentricities, and they have to put up with you. But it can be difficult. It ain't a joke. And it's, it can be very, very difficult. So it's, um, yeah, it, that could be a form of penance. Another form um, could be, you know, private penances. It, uh, there, there are very simple things that people, it doesn't matter if they're consecrated or not, they can do. Um, you can say extra prayers. You can um, mortify your taste at meals. That might mean not putting sugar in your coffee sometimes. Or you could do an act of charity or you could maybe um, work on something that you know you have to work on that you don't like. <laughs> you know, there might be something at work that you have to do and that you keep postponing because you really don't want to do it. Well, you can do it as penance. Right? Um, so there's, there's different things and often it's left to the discretion of 
the consecrated person. Um, sometimes they're spelled out in rules, uh, sometimes they're not. But the idea is a generous person, a generous soul, who really intends to live out that commitment to Christ and his church. It's like with, with, with true love, you want to give. You want to make the other person happy. In the case of religious life, consecrated life, uh, you want to participate in the passion of Jesus Christ. You want to participate in the salvation of souls. And this is something that's going to drive you to do penances that are above and beyond the call of minimal duties that are you know, the minimal obligations of your life. And how that is lived, again, depends on your circumstances because you can't be imprudent and you know, kill yourself with these things. So it, it really depends. You might, some people might get up for half an hour in the middle of the night to do some Bible study and some prayer. Who knows? It, it just depends. Thank you. I think yes. you may have answered this already okay. in part of what you just responded there. I was just curious in the in the role of the of the consecrated virgin yes. if you um, are are also called to a life of ministry or witnessing as a Catholic. Okay. So the question is: Is a consecrated virgin also called to a role of ministry as a as a Catholic or a witness? Yes. Okay. Remember I said that there's a difference between a woman with private vows and somebody who's publicly constituted as a consecrated person in the church? Um, if you're publicly consecrated in the church, you have a special duty to be a witness for Christ. So it's very necessary to know your faith, to live it out fully, to be a witness, um, but that, that witness is going to be lived out primarily by who you are and what you do to further your relationship with the Lord and secondarily in, you know, whatever you might say or do. Um, so, again, it's about who you are primarily. That is the biggest witness because if you're really authentically living out this life, you know, you're going to be radiating Christ. And that's the biggest thing is people are attracted to the Lord when they see happy people, when they see people who are really getting fulfillment out of a life of love for God. Okay, thank you very much.